previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Well, this episode is released on October the 18th. And what do you know? Go back 100 years ago today and the British Broadcasting Company was being formed when four British companies, let's not forget two American companies as well, got together and created this new British Broadcasting Company. One century ago today. At time of release of podcast. You're likely to be listening to this far later. Happy birthday, Auntie Beeb. Arguably, that's what all of this has been building up towards. But oh, no, no, no. We are here for the long haul. Yes, indeed. The company may have formed 100 years ago, but the 100th anniversary of the first broadcast, of course, will be on November the 14th, which is the date of my final performance of the first broadcast. Come and see it live. And over the last few episodes, we brought you to February of 1923, the tale of the first Welsh station on the last episode, which was home to much early Shakespeare, don't you know? But just days after Cardiff station opened, the very first broadcast Shakespeare was on London to LO, the first bar on the Beeb. Dr Andrea Smith joins us this time to guide us through the very first broadcast shaky and elsewhere we'll be doffing our caps to the centenary of the BBC. Exactly a hundred years old today. So I guess finally we have a complete British broadcasting century. London hello, hello. Welcome to 100 years of British broadcasting officially now. Now, do not worry. This podcast is not complete. We won't be complete until we've told the full story. We've only reached February 1923, which on this occasion means the tale of the first Shakespeare on the BBC. But we'd be remiss not to doff our caps to the fact that 100 years ago to this very day was when the first directors of the BBC formed... <laughs> It's the big six wireless companies lending a director each. That's Right Honourable Lord Gainford, Chairman, Major Basil Binion, Managing Director of Radio Communication Company Limited, John Gray, the Chairman of Hotpoint Electrical Appliance Company Limited, busy making irons and kettles and things, Godfrey Isaacs, the Managing Director of Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company, Archibald McKinstry, the Joint Managing Director of Metropolitan Vickers, Sir William Noble, the Director of General Electric Company, and Henry Mark Peace, the Managing Director of Western Electric Company. It was a largely administrative occasion. Yes, it was all signed, sealed and delivered on this day. The British Broadcasting Company came into being at the Institute of Electrical Engineers on the north bank of the Thames. And in that same building, six months later, the BBC would set up its first permanent home at Savoy Hill. Now, I won't go into much further detail on this occasion. We've been making a song and dance about this for quite some time now. But hurrah, the BBC itself, of which we are nothing to do with, one must stress. Uh, the BBC are now launching their centenary season of programmes. You can see various items, including a Strictly Come Dancing centenary special, where they'll be dancing to TV and radio themes. Marvellous. The Pips, maybe. The Archers. Who knows? Uh, Doctor Who has a centenary special, yet to be confirmed if Wreath will appear as Cyber Wreath. Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse will be giving a loving, mocking tribute to 100 years of the BBC with the love box in your living room. Hmm. And there'll also be a tribute to the Children's Hour. Uh, and here's one I made earlier, hosted by Connie Huck. Now, I've also been involved with a BBC show, the BBC's first 50 years. Uh, it's John Bridcut is the executive producer. Uh, he's the man in charge of that show. And it'll be a couple of feature-length documentaries, 90 minutes apiece. That's three hours in total. I've done the maths for you. Now, I was only involved for a month or so doing some research on this project. But the clips I saw were marvellous. Don't expect the full works of the BBC backstory. Just expect some marvellous things that you won't have seen before. But anyway, that's all to appear 
in the next few weeks on the BBC. And of course, if you're listening in the far future, you can try BBC Sounds, you can try the iPlayer, and all of these things may be there somewhere. So we're here to stay, and what we particularly like doing on this podcast is dive into the granular detail, almost a day-by-day account of the early BBC. Now, we have been taking our time, it's fair to say. We will speed up, but for now, it's all the first firsts of the BBC, really. So last episode, we brought you the first Cardiff station, which was 5WA. Here's a clip we've just discovered that we didn't include last time. Cecil Colburn of the early Cardiff station. While I was at Cardiff, Reith came down and Burroughs, you know the name Burroughs, the programme man. And uh, this man Burroughs said that in 10 years' time, we should be a power in the land, you see. He could sort of see what was coming. Within a day or two of that, you had the first Shakespeare on the BBC. 16th of Feb, that first dramatic transmission of Julius Caesar, brackets, bits of. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now, talking all about uh, the BBC and Shakespeare, to BBC or not BBC, these are the questions. Lecturer at University of Suffolk, Dr Andrea Smith. Thank you, Andrea, for joining us. No, thank you, Paul. I, I love the podcast. I know it sounds really sad, sad and fangirly, but genuinely do. Oh, and, thank um, you for... I listen to it avidly and think, and it adds to my research. So there we go. So Excellent. thank you. Well, thank you for getting involved with it. We, we often hear from you and, and from Alan, Alan Stafford as well, who I'm well aware is in the vicinity. Uh, yes. And this is a marvellous thing. That was somewhere. <laughs> so thank you. And, um, but uh, so this point of our, of our podcast journey, of our uh, chronological, very gradual, very slow, some would say too slow, but I don't listen to them, uh, journey through early broadcasting, we're reaching uh, Shakespeare, and so we're going to talk about uh, the first transmissions of that. So this is so Dickens got there first, by the sounds of it, didn't he? Because well, you know, I Christmas mean, yeah, and it, it's, it's going to depend on what you class as a play. Okay. So this is the big this is the big debate right. for me. Is okay. When was the first radio drama? Now I think <laughs> it's Twelfth Night in May twenty three, but. If you go back mm. pre-BBC, you've got Cyrano, Cyrano de Bergerac, yep. which you've, I know you've mentioned on the podcast. See episode 17 for more on the first broadcast drama, Cyrano de Bergerac, live from 2MT Riddle with Peter Eckersley and team, although probably only about 10 minutes or so. We had something around Christmas 22. Arthur Burroughs in apparently the first drama written for radio, The Truth About Father Christmas, on Christmas Day 1922. They've also got a couple of sessions in early 23 where they do scenes from Shakespeare. So, okay, yeah, and then of course, the other thing is when the first play written specifically for the radio came out, mm. that was in 24 with um Richard Hughes' play Danger. So, different people take different dates as being the start of radio drama. Well, I, I quite agree with that, and in fact, it's rude and wrong of me. How dare I even introduce Shakespeare by talking about Dickens? But so I just thought <laughs> to put it into just to give it some some context that just before December 22, then it's just and it's just readings, it's just a bit of yeah. a reading from an excerpt from a bit of a Christmas carol. It's certainly not radio drama, I would say. Now, like a good Shakespeare history play, this podcast is going to be part one of the first Shakespeare on the BBC. Part two of the first Shakespeare on the BBC will not be for some episodes yet because it breaks down like this. On February the 16th, 1923, you have the first excerpt from a Shakespeare. It's a bit of Julius Caesar. We'll tell you more about exactly which bit shortly. On April the 10th, out of interest, you get some Cardiff Shakespeare, an extract of King John. April the 23rd, for Shakespeare's birthday, you get scenes from Shakespeare, presented by Professor Acton Bond. Great name. 
And then another key date, 28th of May, 1923, the first full-length Shakespeare play, that's Twelfth Night, broadcast in its entirety, pretty much, directed by Nigel Playfair, who was also in it as St Andrew Agachik. So there's later dates, like the first full-length play on May the 28th. We will get to when we reach that point in our timeline. For now, we are still in February. But before we get to more detail of the Shakespeare on the BBC, there is another minor, arguably dramatic transmission I want to tell you about. Four days before Shakespeare on the Beep, you had the first pantomime broadcast. February the 12th, 1923, live from the Hippodrome, Cinderella. Whether pantomime lends itself to broadcasting as successfully as opera is a point which will be decided on Monday evening. From the Leeds Mercury, February 10th, 1923. On that night, the London Hippodrome production Cinderella will be linked up by landline to Marconi House and a goodly number of songs and much business will be sent out to the wide world. The difference between opera and pantomime, however, is that with the former, sight is not so important as hearing. In fact, some enthusiasts deliberately close their eyes in the theatre so that the stage action shall not interfere with their pleasure of listening to the music, but listening to and not seeing a principal boy, say, is another matter. Now, opera season had, of course, dominated January. We've had many an episode on that, but there was still an interest to broadcast live from theatres. And so, February the 12th and March the 13th of 1923, you could hear Cinderella from the Hippodrome. Now that a permanent cable has been laid down connecting the London Hippodrome to the London Broadcasting Station, listeners in will be able to look forward to the pleasing prospect of being able to bring the country's leading musical variety turns right to the fireside. From Popular Wireless magazine, 17th of February 1923. I'm told by one who should know that the present transmissions from the Hippodrome will continue until Easter. February the 24th and March the 8th and April the 9th and April the 18th, you'd have heard the last waltz from the Gaiety Theatre. Directly beneath Marconi House. March the 16th, live from Daly's Theatre, you would hear the Lady of the Rose. March the 21st, you'd hear the Battling Butler from the Adelphi Theatre. The manager of the London Hippodrome is of the opinion that by enabling all the thousands of listeners in to hear the choicest items from the programmes, an incentive to greater attendance at the actual show will be provided. I'm sure his optimism will be very ably supported. So as far as the BBC are concerned, this is advertising the theatre and helpfully giving them content to broadcast. Cecil Lewis, the deputy director of programmes, noted how the microphone was of such a voracious beast that you had to constantly feed it content and a theatre piece could take up an entire evening. How marvellous. But many of the theatre producers and managers were saying, well, no, you're stealing our audiences. By broadcasting the plays for free, people aren't going to come and see us. In the same magazine, Descent. Broadcasting versus theatres. Consternation among the theatre managers being brought about by the recent success of opera broadcasting. According to the Star, there is a divided opinion among them as to whether or not broadcasting will eventually have the result of emptying the theatres altogether. Among those who believe that wireless will have a bad effect on the stage world is Mr C.B. Cochrane, who says that it will do more harm than good in this respect. I think that anything that keeps people at home in the evening prevents them from going to the theatre. I don't believe in the wireless. No person fond of the theatre could possibly enjoy hearing a great artiste by wireless. In this connection, it is as well to reflect on the thousands who enjoyed the Covent Garden season by this means, most of whom would have found it absolutely impossible to have been present at the Opera House. But many of the theatre managers are not so pessimistic about broadcasting, and though they do not welcome the idea of whole plays being broadcasted, they have no objection to parts being transmitted. Mr Cecil Bart takes a far more cheerful view. We need to be like-minded, he said. 
It's no good saying broadcasting is going to ruin us. Let us see how it will help us. I do not think it will cut the ground from under the feet of the producers. But why should there be all this unrest and consternation? Broadcasting is never likely to empty the theatres, and however good the transmission and the play, it cannot be the same to listeners in as it is to those present in the theatre. Surely those who hear a play by wireless and like it will want to go and see it. Well, it looks like, actually, the BBC's argument was correct to a degree. That performance of The Battling Butler on March the 21st, that one broadcast led one listener booking 21 tickets for them and their friends for that particular show. So it was working as an advertisement. We all know, though, the demise of Music Hall, once broadcasting came along, shows that not all theatre performance types seem to have lasted that transition into the broadcast age. Now, often it was just one act from these shows. You had to go live to see the full works. But they reckon that about 8,000 tickets were sold, down to those excerpts being broadcast. It seems like it's this embargo on outdoor broadcasts from, from theatres that they did in, in early 23 yeah. that, that actually then propelled them to go, right, what do we do? Drama in the studio. How do we do this? What do we do? So it's sort of been building. So in February, you get your first few scenes. You get some scenes of, of um, from Julius Caesar and from Othello on air. There's a few scenes. Is it February 16th? Yeah, that's that it. You have, that's the quarrel scene, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love the way they rephrase these because um, I'm not 100% sure which the quarrel scene is. I think they're talking about Brutus and Cassius. There's a bit towards the end of the play where they have a, have a big old row. Um, so I presume that's, that's what they're talking about. But yeah, they, they often, these days, we'd almost certainly say, act and scene number mm. so we give the act numbers because they're reasonably standardized in most editions but often these they're given kind of you know different different titles in in this period yeah shell gunner as brutus and hubert carter as cassius yeah. and and then they both return there's yeah. a little musical break and then hubert carter comes back and does mark antony's oration uh, which, whichever bit that is. I and think then... that is probably Friends, Roman Countrymen. Oh, yeah, OK. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. I think that's going to yeah. be the speech after Caesar's death, I think. I would. That's my guess. Mm. <laughs> Again, it's difficult, but I, that would what, I, what I'd suggest that was, yeah. And then you've got uh, another uh, piano break uh, from uh, mm. Mr Willoughby Wormsley. Uh, and then there's a lecture from Dr J.O. Fleming, who invented the wireless valve and made all of this thing possible uh, for 15 minutes. And then a soprano in the news, and then Shell Gardner comes back and does Othello's defence. So yeah. uh, that's quite an evening. That is, uh, it's, it's a, again, a, sli a slightly odd choice of scenes, you might say. They're not the obvious scenes. I mean, I guess Mark Antony's oration is a very well-known piece. But, you know, if you're looking for the biggies in Shakespeare, you might have gone for to be or not to be, for example. Yeah. Or, you know, there are various other soliloquies you might have chosen. They're kind of slightly... For my money, slightly obscure scenes. It's slightly interesting. It makes me wonder whether there was anything prior to this that we don't know about. Because we the records, as you know, are, are very sketchy, early BBC. Um, and so whether there's anything that went out earlier, whether they, you know, whether somebody at some point has already done to be or not to be, we just don't know. I don't well, you know. Looking at the at the written archives file, it does it has got handwritten in first. Shakespeare scene but we don't oh, wow. I don't know whether that was handwritten in in 1928 or in 2004 or you know there's no way of telling but at some point someone has scrawled in like this was yeah. the first thing that happened there so um and it, it was also 
looking through it as well, this is just my eye on it, so I may have missed something, but it seems to be one of the very, very few nights that they say they ended with God Save the King as well. Oh, that I hadn't noticed. That's just, interesting. It just makes me wonder if this was... Some, and they did it occasionally, or they, yeah. they specified that it happened occasionally. You know, this is the programme's as broadcast. This is not telling you what's going to be on, it's telling you what was on. Yeah. And it just makes you wonder if this was deemed as a bit of a, a, bit of a special night. Quite possibly, yeah. It, it's it's very interesting. Shakespeare, Reith was interested in Shakespeare. He he really felt that wireless was the thing that was going to popularise Shakespeare. Um, in his book in 1924, Broadcast Over Britain, he talks about that and how he feels that radio is the medium for Shakespeare. So, again, I don't know whether any of this came from him, whether he's pushing for early doors, because obviously by February he's, he's well and truly got his feet under the table. So, mm. you know, whether this is partly him, I don't know. From Broadcast Over Britain by John Reith. Plays of Shakespeare fulfilled to a great extent the requirements of wireless, for he had little in the way of setting and scenery, and relied chiefly on the vigour of his plot and the conviction of the speakers to convey his ideas. It is not at all unlikely that wireless will render a highly important service in popularising Shakespeare. So, and, and lots of people in those very early books in 1924, when the BBC's been on air just in you know, a year or two, are talking about, if they mentioned drama at all they often mention Shakespeare and they often say oh it's made for for radio. Cecil Lewis later wrote in the Radio Times well one of the very first few Radio Times is on broadcasting Shakespeare 19th of October 1923. To true lovers of Shakespeare listening should appeal for there is neither acting scenery nor any of the numerous interruptions of the theatre to distract from full enjoyment of the wonderful speeches and sentences with which every play of Shakespeare abounds. I far prefer to sit with eyes closed to hear the words spoken imagine the scenery for myself. And from modern wireless, nearly a decade later, in 1931. How many of us thought, when the old British Broadcasting Company broadcast the quarrel scene from Julius Caesar some eight years ago, that from that small beginning would evolve an entirely new art, radio drama? The thing about Shakespeare, specifically, and that era of playwriting, is that because it was written for a stage with very little set, with very little costume, you had some costume, but not a lot. Um, a lot of it is carried in the words, not everything, but a lot is carried in the words. It has to be because, and also if you've ever been to the modern replica of Shakespeare's Globe and done the tour, they will tell you that most places in that venue, you can't get a proper view of the stage. Mm. There's, there's lots of columns and things in the way. So, it had to be in the text. It had to be in the words, because otherwise the audience at times wouldn't be able to see what's going on. They needed to hear it. Mm. So it doesn't cover everything. So sword fights in particular, there's one in, at the end of Hamlet, which is a problem for radio because um, Hamlet and um, Laertes swap swords and you need to know that. And it's not that's not written down. But of course, on stage, that probably would be fairly obvious because it'd be a clatter of the swords falling and you'd see it and you all the rest of it. But um so there are, but there are a lot of things that are that Shakespeare writes into the text that mean that you don't actually need to do as much narration as it, and explanation as you would if you adapted a twentieth or twenty first century play, for example, mm, mm. which can be much more tricky because it can be much more visual. Particularly because once you get the advent of film, I think we're all so used to things being visual. Our theatre productions being very visual. A lot of things I've seen in recent years um, are much more visual. And then if you try and put that on the radio as is. Mm. It's not going to work. No, so. Of course, yeah. I, I'm trying to completely read between the lines here. I'm looking at when uh, this February the 16th um, broadcast of a few scenes from Shakespeare seems to be right in the middle of when they were still broadcasting 
live just what one acts from from yeah plays they would be at that point yeah so so they hadn't had the embargo yet about no. about that so um but the, embargo by, i think is end of april so maybe by shakespeare's birthday then there there's probably a bit of bad will in the air and, and maybe a so. sense that we need to work out how to do this in-house ourselves yeah so the theatre managers were taken against the BBC in the months to come. But at this very moment, in fact, in February 23, the newspapers had already taken against the Beeb to such a degree that they were no longer printing listings. We're going to come back in a couple of episodes time to explain more about what exactly that meant and what the ramifications were. Clue, spoiler, the Radio Times comes about because of this very newspaper ban. They did not want listings in the press. The BBC held their nerve under wreath, of course. And that listings ban slightly backfired. More of that, though, to come on a future episode. And, of course, worth mentioning as well, February 16th does tread on, on Alan's toes as well, doesn't it? In yes, you said that, yeah. Harry Tate is to, opens the proceedings <laughs> with uh, a, a little sketchable broadcasting. And our expert on Harry Tate is, in fact, Dr Andrew Smith's other half, Alan Stafford, who got in touch to tell me about Harry Tate's broadcasting sketch, which was on air that same night as the first Shakespeare. Harry Tate apparently performed in a number of ensemble sketches in variety, the most famous being motoring and fishing. You can find out more about Harry Tate on YouTube with some examples of him. He had lots of sketches involving props and explosions, very broad humour. Now, Broadcasting was a review sketch that carried on beyond the review, and it seems to have been in Harry Tate's repertoire for a good couple of years. This is what the Daily Herald had to say about his particular sketch. Harry soon ascertained that a what is a what, and not the other what either and then proceeded to listen in to Saskatoon with a four-and-sixpenny set. It wasn't a success, for the set carried no aerial, no coil, no amplifier, no earth, and no, but what could you expect for four-and-sixpence? A tinker's barrow and a man with an umbrella came to the rescue, and Harry suddenly found himself in the middle of the wireless world. Everybody from New York to Moscow appeared to be broadcasting. The wavelengths got tangled, the Tate receiving set was listening in to the world at large, an Albert Hall concert got mixed up with a Russian revolution, and things got so deliciously muddled that the homespun set could not stand it any longer. There was a fuzz and a fut, and the voices suddenly ceased, and the human mast disappeared. Presently his singed and mangled remains fell from the ceiling. A review there of the visual, theatrical version of Harry Tate's broadcasting. The audio version was broadcast just before this first Shakespeare. It's been an interesting time because we're both researching early BBC history, but from quite different angles. Mm. Um, but every now and again, there's an overlap, which is always very interesting. So, I mean, Fantastic. when you get a bit later, so my, my, my research takes me right the way through to the current era. But when you get to sort of the post-war period and you get people like Derek Guyler start doing Shakespeare, and very well, if you only know him from things like Sykes, um, mm. then... Derek Guyler is a brilliant Shakespearean actor, but because it's not what he's remembered for today, he's remembered for comedy. Um, and so, and there's quite a lot of actors like that who are, who are sort of known much later for other things. But um, uh, but at that time, you've got a Patrick Troughton does quite a lot, who's obviously now best known as a Doctor Who. But um, I, no, I shouldn't say that, should I? He's not a Doctor Who, he's the Doctor. He's mm, the second Doctor. Course. Sorry, yes, I, I, I get it right. I apologies there for anybody we'll, who's a Doctor we'll Who get fan. Oh, you will. Um, yeah. Paul Hayes will be in touch. I'll tell you, he, he will. will. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of actors who start to appear who've got um, uh, Jimmy Edwards and Beryl Reed um, are fabulous as Sir Toby and um, Mariah in a much later production of Twelfth Night. Um, and so you get comedy people during the war. Elsie and Doris Waters, who are variety musical stars, 
do Merry Wives of Windsor. So there's there's a there's often a bit of an overlap between comedy and drama, um, even though a, in terms of departments they're very separate. Actually, the performers quite often you go, oh, that's that person that I know them from something else. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Murray actually, he's probably the one, the most unsung hero in radio drama for me. Stephen Murray, who if people know the name at all, their name is number one in the Navy Lark. He's the one okay. who's not famous in the Navy Lark. <laughs> He's the one that isn't Leslie Phillips and isn't John Pertwee and isn't Ronnie Barker. He's the other one. Right. Um, and he was did loads of Shakespeare on Reddit and was one of Val Gilgood's favourite actors. Um, and yet people, he's almost forgotten now. Um, and yeah, he was, he did, he was long before he was doing the Navy Lark, long before he became known for comedy. He was a proper serious straight actor doing all the major parts in Shakespeare. So there is overlap between us quite often. (laughs) More from Dr Andrea Smith when she comes back to tell us all about the first full-length play of Shakespeare. That's Twelfth Night, May the 28th, 1923. So part two of this particular first broadcast Shakespeare will be in a few episodes' time. But then the Shakespeare history plays, they're best divided up, aren't they? Finally, as we look to centenary programming, now on this very day of launch of this podcast, October the 18th, the centenary day of the BBC company being formed, there's not a huge amount of programming on the BBC itself, so it seems, although the one thing I did find is Hancock's Half Hour. They've rediscovered this old episode, and it's on Radio 4. You can find it on BBC Sounds. It's a new old episode, bless them. They've even put brackets repeat, even though it's actually not been on since, what, 1955 or something. It was discovered by the Radio Circle, John Harrison there. Well done to him. And I've recorded an interview with Steve Arnold. I've been holding on to this for months, waiting for a good chance to put it out. So we'll do it properly in the new year. The big Steve Arnold interview. He's one of the guys behind the Radio Circle, and he's been helping with the BBC Genome Project. He knows his stuff. But given that on this very day, they're putting out this old rediscovered Hancock, let's have a quick word with Steve Arnold. It started because the bank that I worked at went bust. Ah. And um, Special Branch came in, they closed the the bank down, and it meant I was at home on full pay for about six months, which is what everybody thinks, a wonderful thing. But I was bored. I started scouring the local library, and I noticed in the corner there was a little sort of table with double cassettes, BBC Radio Collection. So I worked through the obvious ones, Hancock's Half Hour, The Goon Show, uh, Round the Horn, and then it was just devouring anything I possibly could. The breadth of material that was suddenly brought to my attention. And if I'd been in a a bank that was a little bit more um, honest, (laughs) I probably (laughs) wouldn't have discovered all of this. So it it was fortuitous. Um, Right. And basically, I I just couldn't get enough. And friends that I had at the time, they said, oh, we recorded some bits and pieces off the radio a couple of years ago to listen to those. So I was borrowing cassettes. And then it was the the fan clubs, Mm. Uh, the back of the BBC radio tapes. You'd get an address for the Hancock Society or the Goon Show Preservation Society. And I contacted those and said, well, you know, this is what's available commercially. Is there anything else? Mm. Um, And I sent off my subscription and got access to their lending libraries. Um, And then I got more and more involved with the societies. 
Um, I ended up as archivist for the Gunshow Preservation Society for some while. But there were gaps. Mm. And it was trying to work out why there were gaps and um, where the gaps actually appeared. Mm, okay. So I was contacting people in the States, Australia, especially Australia, um, had taken quite a lot of BBC material and they were continually broadcasting it. Most of it on really grotty must have been long wave. Um, so picking it up um, in Wagga Wagga um, on long wave with all of the interference and everything else, the recordings weren't great, but it was material that mm. had never been repeated over here. Um, and it had been issued by transcription services. Um, so that opened up another avenue of, I, I was getting batches of 10 cassettes. That's 20 shows that would come through every couple of months. Wow. Okay. And it, it was fantastic. It was a brilliant time. And then eBay came along. Right. Um, and I, again, I was there right at the beginning. It, there was none of this eBay.co.uk. This was all based in America. It was surprising what was being sold. I was getting albums of material that I just didn't know existed. A mm. lot of it wasn't UK material, or a lot of it was. But um, that there, there were American comedy shows, the Marx Brothers, um, you know, lots of stuff like that. That so I, I got quite a lot of material that way. Um, there was there was one particular thing. I was at a Goon Show Preservation Society meeting in London. Barry Hill from Orca was there, and so was Glenn Mitchell, who had written um, a couple of very well-researched, well-received books. The Marx Brothers Encyclopedia, there's a similar one for Laurel and Harding. Um, mm. But they were talking about Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel. Now, Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel had been broadcast by the BBC, and it's a fantastic series. But there was one recording of the original series in existence. And Barry Hill was talking to Glenn and saying, oh, well, I've, I've got one of the acetates. Recording wasn't very easy to start with, which is why the, the period that you're particularly interested in, the, the dawn of radio, mm. there's very, very little of it exists because you couldn't record it. It went out live and that was it. Now, with the Marx Brothers, it was generally again, because of syndication and things like that, they'd managed to cut discs, acetate discs. The speeds at which it operated meant to get a half hour show, you would need three discs. Barry was saying he'd got one of these or a copy of one of these discs. And Glenn was saying, oh, you know, I've, I've managed to get a copy of um, one of them. I don't know which one, but, you know, we'll, we'll do comparisons and hopefully we've got two thirds of a show. And I overheard this, and being rather green, I, I just looked around and said, oh, is this Will Shyster? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the original series. Oh, right, yeah, I, I got that whole show last week. Did you want a copy? And they just looked at me open-mouthed, and it was like, how did... Oh, yeah, I, I just traded the new series with some stuff with someone in the States. I sent them out a couple of the, the BBC series and they've sent me back this batch of cassettes with a whole load of original Marx Brothers stuff on. And sure enough, there was a whole edition of 
the original flywheel shyster and flywheel and that was of a revelation there because it was ah there's material to be discovered okay yes yeah. so it, it was fantastic i i knew that the the internet was a power for good uh, yeah, yeah. I was one of the few, I think. Yeah, I guess you were going to the power for good. You're sort of harboring um, its use, then, I guess. In the, um, and I suppose at this point, then, you've moved from collector to um, preserving to, as you say, then, discovering actually there's these sort of missing or, or presumed missing uh, episodes and series of things. Is it kind of digitized? Is it on shelves? Is it, uh, is it stacks of things? Are you living in a. Uh, is your entire furniture made of back copies of the Radio Times and, uh, and the like? Uh, um, well, let's go. Yes, 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 yes. No. <laughs> right. Uh, Fair enough. That's probably the I, I, I do not have furniture made out of back copies of the Radio Times. Okay. I, I have to draw the line there. <laughs> um, but is it digitised? A large proportion of it is digitised. If the BBC want copies, we're perfectly happy to provide them. We actively offer material to for extra because that is a fantastic resource it gets the material back out there it backs up everything mm. so we could have a copy of a show that was thought to not exist suddenly it turns up we get radio 4 extra interested in it um they say yes we want to broadcast this they broadcast it and then everybody in the country who listens to radio 4 extra has an opportunity to make a recording of it. Mm. And therefore, we have not gone from our master copy and several safety copies at different locations. There's a copy in the BBC, so that's even more safe. And then there's possibly another couple of thousand copies um, being sort of kept all around the country. It secures the future for that particular show. And it's the same for all shows. So I guess it's sort of the the the, the uh, to pick a fancy word the democratization of of archive I suppose that uh, by the, as soon as the BBC broadcast it again it whoop, it's out there it's, it's gone viral again in in a way I yeah. suppose yeah yeah um, it it basically secures its future mm. anything that is rebroadcast now um, is open to a new audience and if a small proportion of that audience record it the chances are it will never be lost again. Mm, yeah. and that has got to be a fantastic thing more from steve on future episodes of the podcast into next year and more from dr andrea smith as well she will return to tell us more about the bard on the beeb in a future episode but for now we're in centenary season and your next three episodes will be celebrating just that 100 years in 100 minutes will follow in three parts to make it more well bite size so next time, expect 33 minutes exactly of the first 33 years of the BBC. And trust me, over the next three episodes, you're going to hear some marvellous voices, some wonderful old clips that you'll never have heard before from the early BBC and some later people who were there. Johnny Beerling, former head of Radio 1, talking about the Radio 1 Roadshow. Miranda Hart, Sally Phillips, the creator of the Wide Awake Club, Geoffrey Holland from Heidi High. They're all here over the next three episodes. So stay subscribed, tell your friends, this is where the party is for a hundred years of British broadcasting. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer.
Find us on Facebook and Twitter and do share what we do with all of your friends, whether on social media or in real person having a conversation in a public house. If you really enjoy the podcast, patreon.com slash paulcarenza is where you can chip in £5 a month and in return get behind-the-scenes videos and writings and things like that. And even, coming soon, an excerpt from Paul's new novel, Auntie and Uncles, The Bizarre Birth of the BBC. Out for pre-order now, don't you know? Archive clips are public domain, as far as we know, due to age. Some rights, though, may belong to other owners that we can't trace. It's a tricky world out there. The BBC content used is with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. A huge thanks and credit to the BBC Written Archive Centre and its staff of marvels, past and present. And God bless all who keep us informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time then, as we properly say, happy centenary, not just to Auntie Beeb, but all of British Broadcasting. A hundred years and a hundred minutes follows on the British Broadcasting Century.